This podcast is a production of WCWP, LIU Post Public Radio. Check out our lineup of original programs, listen live, or support by visiting WCWP.org. This is Anand Venigala, and I will be your host for the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun. Our guest for today is Keith Preston. He is the host of AttackTheSystem.com, a website that works toward a cultivation of harmony between the currently scattered anarchist tendencies and the development of anarchist unity against our common enemy, the state. Keith is widely known in anarchist circles as an important writer of anarchist thought. He has written books such as The Failure of Anarchism, Attack the System, A New Anarchist Perspective for the 21st Century, Beyond the End of History, and The Tyranny of the Politically Correct. I want to thank Keith for joining us on Letter of Liberty. He's one of the best writers in anarchist circles that I've had the pleasure of reading and following. So welcome, Keith, to the Letter of Liberty. Hello, Anand. Thanks for having me. Okay, so what is your website, attackthesystem.com, about? In general, I mentioned that you are trying to unite the anarchist trans. Would you like to go into more detail about what the purpose of the site is? Yes, attackthesystem.com has been online for, um, I think, 18 years now, since about 2001. I think January 2001 is when we went online. And um, what it, it, the project is about is uh, exploring all the different types of uh, anarchist and anti-state tendencies that are out there. Um, many years ago, I started to realize how many different types of anarchism there were and how many different kinds of anti-state or anti-authoritarian philosophies there were. And over the years, I've become something of an amateur scholar of these kinds of ideas and, a, and an advocate for these kinds of ideas. And I wanted to create some kind of uh, clearinghouse where all of these different views can be uh, discussed uh, and within a context of an open forum where divergent ideas about all kinds of things could also be discussed. Uh, a lot of people in anarchist circles, uh, I noticed, were people that would take a very rigid uh, line on this or that question. Uh, a lot of anarchists, for example, take a very rigid left-wing, uh, leftist type of line on just about every issue that comes up. And then you have people from the libertarian milieu that do the same thing, where uh, you already know what they're going to say even before they ask a question or answer a question. So I wanted to have something that was a little bit more open-ended, where uh, ideas could be discussed and debated in a somewhat more serious context. So that was really the original purpose of Attack the System, to create this kind of anarchist and anti-state forum that was open to a divergence of of, uh, of opinion and sort of a clearinghouse for dissident opinion on a general level. Excellent. Thank you for telling us about the purpose of the website. I think that's a valuable and noble purpose. So what do you think anarchism is about? Would you like to explain to our listeners the history of how anarchism formed and how it developed into various strands and versions? Well, there are prototypes for anarchism as a philosophical system that go all the way back to the ancient world. Now, if we go back and look at ancient Chinese philosophy, we can see uh, tendencies within Taoism, or if we look at uh, the ancient Greeks, we can see uh, thinkers like Zeno or Diogenes that had uh, somewhat uh, similar ideas to what anarchists later developed. And throughout history, there have always been movements and, and tendencies that had the same kind of anti-authoritarian or anti-centralist or anti-state or 
uh, anti-hierarchical or anti-elite outlook. Uh, during the Middle Ages, for example, you had a lot of uh, religious-oriented movements that had this kind of outlook. And then even in the early modern period, you had tendencies like the diggers and the levelers and all of that. But modern anarchism developed um, in the 18th and 19th century uh, during the Enlightenment and, and the immediate aftermath of the Enlightenment. You, you'll have thinkers like uh, William Godwin, he was an English philosopher, who was one of the first thinkers to really create a modern intellectual system that was anarchistic in nature. And then you had the German philosopher Max Stirner, who had a, a much different philosophical premise than Godwin, but it's, it came to, to similar conclusions in the sense of totally rejecting the legitimacy of the state. Uh, the first thinker to ever call himself an anarchist was Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. He was a French economist in the early 19th century, uh, and then anarchism actually develops into a movement uh, in the 19th, in the late 19th century. It was uh, part of the radical labor movement. This was during the time of the Industrial Revolution and uh, the class polarization that existed in, in Europe and in, in America and in the other um, industrializing countries, and you had this radical labor movement that developed, and anarchists were heavily involved in that. So you had these new anarchist tendencies that developed um, through the influence of thinkers like uh, Bakunin. He was a, a Russian. He was a former Slavic nationalist who became an anarchist. And then you had Kropotkin, uh, Peter Kropotkin. He was another Russian uh, nobleman who had actually uh, become a uh, an anarchist as well. Uh, and then anarchism in the late 19th and early 20th century actually becomes a revolutionary movement. You had anarchists uh, in a lot of different nations, uh, not only in the uh, in the industrializing nations in, in, in the West, but even in the colonies. Uh, you had the uh, anarchists involved in the anti-colonial and anti-imperialist struggles in the uh, European colonies as well, in, in Latin America and in, uh, in Africa and Asia. Uh, so for a time in the late 19th and early 20th century, anarchists were really the premier revolutionary movement in the world. Later it was eclipsed by other things like communism and all of that. Uh, and then anarchism starts to make something of a revival in the 1960s and 70s because you had a new wave of radicalism developed during that time uh, in response to things like the war in Vietnam and all of the cultural changes that the uh, different countries were experiencing at the time, as well as the technological changes and then the growth of the post-war anti-colonial movements as well. So anarchism develops out of that. And it's continued to branch off into all different kinds of uh, tendencies. Um, for example, there's anarcho-primitivism. These are people who reject technology and, and combine that with rejection of the state. Or you know, on the other end, you have anarcho-transhumanism. This is a uh, they embrace technology and all sorts of uh, you know, almost, almost science fiction-like uh, sounding ideas about what technological capabilities can achieve. And that's where we are now. We have all of these many, many different divergent types of anarchism and related philosophies that are out there. Excellent. And I'm interested in the idea of how anarchism can be unique in the certain historical and geographical situations where it is located. For example, in America, you have these individualist anarchists like Lysandra Spooner and Benjamin Tucker, Whereas in Europe, you might have a more collectivist style of anarchism, though I'm sure there are individualist styles within Europe as well. And then you have, like, different variants in Africa, Asia. Well, anarchist movements tend to reflect the cultural milieu in which they develop. Uh, and that's true of any kind of political movements or any kind of uh, alternative culture or anything like that. Uh, none of these kinds of ideas ever develop purely in a vacuum. Uh, so... 
in a country like the United States where you have this uh, strong tradition that's rooted in English liberalism and classical liberalism that's very individualistic, um, you'll see the pr- proliferation of movements like uh, in the 19th century, you had individualist anarchists, uh, some of the thinkers you were mentioning like uh, Lysander Spooner, uh, as well as Benjamin Tucker, others like that, in uh, more recent times, uh, there have been these anarcho-capitalist people like Murray Rothbard, as well as the agorist like Sam Conkin, and there are others uh, in that genre as well. Um, but that, I think, is an outgrowth of, of the influence of English liberalism and the kind of individualism that developed out of that. Um, classical 19th century anarchism, to a large degree, developed in countries that were pre-modern in the sense that they were still largely agricultural, feudal types of types of nations like uh, Russia, um, uh, Spain, Italy, places like that. Uh, And in some of those places, you had a very strong peasant communal tradition. Uh, So you tended to have a more communal-oriented type of anarchism that developed in those places as well. Um, That was also true of Asian uh, anarchists. You had large anarchist movements in the early 20th century in China and Korea, to a lesser degree in Japan, uh, and they tended to reflect you know, some of the variations that you see in the cultures of those um, nations as well. Uh, and Africa, there's a tradition of African anarchism. Uh, there was an interesting book on African anarchism that was written a few years ago. Um, I can't remember the, the author's name right offhand. Um, but you, it, it, it was an effort in, in part to connect uh, anarchism to certain African traditions where you have the, uh, the idea of a, you know, the federal rule by a tribe and things like that. Um, so you have um, many different ways in which anarchism as an idea can be applied and, and ways in which it overlaps with other kinds of cultural and philosophical and even religious traditions. Which brings me to the question of classical liberalism, because I wonder how they related to one another. Of course, in English and American societies, individualist anarchism had some relation to classical liberalism. In fact, individual anarchism, as Lysander Spooner argued, would basically be an extreme version of classical liberalism. Whereas in a country like France, there are classical liberals like Friedrich Bastiat, but who weren't anarchists. Then there are people like Gustave de Molinari, who was a bit of a classical liberal, but also proto-anarchist in his ideas about how security can be privately produced. So what do you think? Well, these different ideas are essentially cousins of one another. Uh, They have somewhat similar roots in the sense that anarchism... Uh, libertarianism, uh, li- classical liberalism, even libertarian socialism, all of these ideas have their roots in the radicalism of the Enlightenment. You can go back to the classical liberal philosophy that came out of the Enlightenment, and you can see that all of these different ideas are in some ways derivative of that. Uh, you have some thinkers that took the classical liberal idea and radicalized it. They took it in a more extreme direction. Um, Lysander Spooner, who was an American, fits into that category. Uh, there were some French thinkers like Molinari who fit into that category. Uh, Bastiat was a classical liberal, but he was also a friend of Pierre-Joseph Proudhon. They even sat next to each other in, in the parliament, in the French parliament at one point. Um, and, and Proudhon was the founder of modern anarchism, or the first person to call himself an anarchist. Um, the connecting point, I think, in American political history between uh, classical liberalism and, and classical anarchism is Benjamin Tucker. Uh, Benjamin Tucker was uh, an American publisher of a newspaper called Liberty, 
Uh, and certainly he was heavily influenced by the, the liberal, the English liberal tradition, and you see the influence of thinkers like um, like Spooner, uh, uh, and obviously going turning back the clock, thinkers like Thomas Jefferson on his thinking. Uh, but then you also see the influence of Proudhon. He was um, um, a big uh, enthusiast for Proudhon's work in economics. He was also a devotee of the philosopher uh, of the philosophy of Max Stirner. Uh, he even translated some of Karl Marx's works uh, into English. Uh, so there is this connecting point there between where you know, where liberalism and, and libertarianism and anarchism and socialism all kind of interact with one another and they branch off into all these different kinds of tendencies. But they're all cousins that are rooted in this wider Enlightenment paradigm. They're all part of that kind of family tree. Thank you for your explanation. So I wanted to ask, what was your intellectual development? What was your trajectory? How did you come to be an anarchist? Uh, well, I've always been an anarchist as an adult. I was, I was never really anything else. Uh, I grew up in, in the United States. Uh, the family in cultural environment I grew up in was very conservative, very Republican-oriented, very uh, uh, Christian, evangelical, Protestant-oriented. Um, when I was starting to uh, move, get older, I, I realized I really didn't agree with a lot of that, so I started thinking, well, what am I? And uh, initially I figured, well, I must be a liberal then. If I'm not a conservative, I must be a liberal. But uh, the, you know, that lasted about five minutes, the uh, the, the more I solved just mainstream liberalism, the more I realized that uh, wasn't really something that I wanted to be a part of. So I started looking at more radical philosophies, uh, and I was always anti-authoritarian, so I was never interested in communism or fascism or any of those kinds of ideas. Uh, so eventually I came to the anarchist position and said, yeah, I, I guess this is what I am, uh, and it's more or less been the same ever since. I was also raised in a conservative household, and I think when I was around 13, 14, I, just started, I started to look into libertarianism and the ideas of Ron Paul. Initially, I thought he was like RuPaul, that this mild-mannered family man was the equivalent of a drag queen, so to speak, because Mark Levin told me so. And, of course, I disagreed with him mainly on foreign policy, but that was before I started to look into his ideas, and I was coming to slowly agree with them more and more. And I eventually was sympathetic to anarchism. I didn't quite go there yet, but I was sympathetic to it. And I always had this idea in my head that I would be an anarchist after reading a certain book like For a New Liberty by Murray Rothbard. And after I finished reading that book, I became an anarcho-capitalist, and I've never really looked back since. Yeah, um, I can't really say it was any one book or any one thinker that influenced my own uh, thinking towards anarchism. I, you know, I, my introduction to anarchism was just reading about it in very generic sources, things like the Encyclopedia. I mean, there was no internet back then. This was years before the internet. Um, so things like the Encyclopedia, and then just basic introductory books on political philosophy. Well, this is what liberals believe. This is what conservatives believe. This is what uh, Marxists believe, and, and things like that. Uh, and it always seemed to me that the uh, the anarchist position was the one that was the most interesting. Um, in terms of my application of anarchist ideas, I've fluctuated back and forth between different things um, there. Um, when I was started out as an anarchist, I was uh, you know, a fairly standard left-type anarchist. I was interested in Noam Chomsky and thinkers like that, and then I was interested in uh, syndicalism, uh, groups like the IWW and all of that. Um, and I've never really turned against that. It's not that I'm opposed to any of that today, except that over time I started expanding my horizons a bit. 
I, for a while, I was interested in anarcho-capitalism and Rothbard and all of those kinds of ideas, and then I started uh, becoming interested in other types of anarchism and other philosophies as well. Um, but I don't really rigidly uh, attach myself to any one philosophical paradigm. You know, I think that uh, it's possible to draw ide- uh, ideas from a lot of different philosophical systems without really fully embracing any of them or, or without uh, uh, ignoring weaknesses in different positions. To some extent, I agree, and I consider myself an anarcho-capitalist, but I do sympathize with earlier strains of individualist anarchism, and those strains of anarchism which tend to favor violent revolution, which you have written about in your blog. And I personally tend to favor it more than most anarcho-capitalists, because for many anarcho-capitalists, they think violent revolution is basically, in most cases, replacing one state with another state. And historically, that has often been true, but I think that also misses the point and oversimplifies things. And I also think that within an anarcho-capitalist society, an anarcho-communist commune or something would exist. And so I think anarcho-capitalism would in the end be the most open form of anarchism, personally. Yeah, I tend to be what I call um, an anarcho-pluralist or a pan-anarchist in the sense that I'm, I don't really fully embrace any one paradigm in anarchism as much as I'm for letting a thousand flowers bloom and, to, and determining, well, what ends up producing the best results, what do most people like, uh, and things of that nature. Um, and to the degree that different types of anarchism uh, or anarchists can't get along, uh, I guess I could be called an anarcho-separatist in the sense that, well, we can have different kinds of communities and enclaves and territories for different types of anarchism, and they can practice anarchism in their own way. And, and that, in turn, makes anarchism compatible, really, with any kind of voluntary organization. You know, I tend to say that uh, you know, a, a, a group, an institution, an organization, a movement, a society, is, uh, is legitimately anarchist to the degree that participation is voluntary. And then there's also a right of exit as well. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good uh, standard to go by. Um, so I think that with uh, anarchism, you'd probably see a proliferation of a lot of different kinds of ideas, different modes of social organization, economic systems, and things like that. And that can be a feature rather than a bug per se, because it reminds me of how the Protestants work. But there are so many denominations, and the Catholics will say, well, that's a problem. You rebelled against the Mother Church, and thus you have so many divisions and denominations, whereas... We could see that as a feature rather than a bug, a way of respecting the diversity of various Christians and various understandings of how to practice the faith. And I think similarly with all the various versions of anarchism, where instead of one Catholic anarchism, there is a Catholic Catholicism of anarchisms and pluralism, so to speak. Yeah, uh, that, that, that's a good analogy. Um, I think that the, the church analogy works in another way in the sense that in modern societies, when church and state were separated, uh, either formally like they are in the United States or informally like they are in, in Europe, um, it's not that everyone suddenly became an atheist. Instead, uh, there, was, uh, there were just as many churches as ever before, but church, churches became voluntary communities uh, that reflected the beliefs and needs and interests of their own associates. Uh, you know, in the United States, on one hand, we have the separation of church and state, the First Amendment, and all of that. But then we have as many uh, churches as just about any society that is predominantly Christian. And then we have the uh, uh, many different kinds of Christianity, as well as many other religious points of view represented as well. Uh, and then within different kinds of religious communities, you have some that are conservative, 
uh, some that are liberal, some that are moderate. You have some that are more traditional, some that are more um, um, unconventional. You have some that are um, very hierarchical in terms of their internal structures, others that are very democratic. You have some like the Quakers that don't even have clergy at all. Um, you have, uh, you know, in terms of their their actual theological views or their actual worship practices, you have a huge amount of variations as well. You have some that speak in tongues and, and some that some that that don't believe in that. Uh, so anarchism, I think, is the same way in the sense that you know you can have anarchist groups and and movements and organizations and communities that reflect a wide diversity of what approaches to anarchism uh, and to voluntary modes of social organization. Excellent. Excellent point. Speaking of which, where does Murray Rothbard fall into the whole history of anarchism? Because a lot of anarchists, many of whom are on the left wing and more collectivist side, basically don't like him because he was on the anarcho-capitalist side and in his later period he was more right wing. Well, Rothbard, I think, certainly qualifies as an anarchist. I mean, somebody who wanted to abolish the state completely... Uh, who opposed collaboration with the state, even to the point of opposing voting in elections and uh, opposing jury service and things like that. I mean, he was an act an anarchist. Um, the um, you know he now he always specifically pointed out that he was an anarcho-capitalist and he was actually very critical of anarcho-communism and ideas like that as well. Uh, so the the anarcho-communists who say, well, he's not really one of us, well, they're they're right in that sense uh, that he wasn't an anarcho-communist, but he was an anarchist in the sense of uh, certainly wanting to abolish the state uh, and replace it with uh, voluntary or at least private uh, communities uh, and associations. Um, Rothbard also, I think, was an important figure in a lot of ways, though, because, um, and not just for having invented the tendency of anarcho-capitalism or at least popularizing it. But um, he also had the idea, and I think this was really important, he had the idea that for any kind of anarchist or libertarians or anti-statist, foreign policy has to really be the primary area of focus and concern. And, and I think that was a good thing. Yes, yes. And opposition to wars between states, uh, it has to be a primary focus of any, for any kind of anarchist. Because it's really war is the worst thing that the state does. You know, it's, it basically amounts to large-scale organized killing. Not only that, but war is used as a pretext for increasing state repression in every other area as well. Uh, whether it's military draft, whether it's rationing goods, whether it's repressing political dissent, all of these different kinds of things. Uh, so Rothbard, I think, was spot on when it came to his idea that opposing uh, state warfare has to be the, really the main focus of. Um, of libertarians or anarchists or anybody that's opposed to the state. Uh, and uh, he's, one thing about him that you mentioned that's interesting is that he was always uh, associated with the people who were the most libertarian trend of his time. Um, way back in the 1950s, uh, he was a states' rights conservative, and then he was a Taft Republican, and then he, uh, in the 1960s, became associated with the New Left uh, because of their uh, association, uh, because of their opposition to the to the Vietnam War, um, and then in the 90s, uh, at the end of his life, he became interested in the paleo conservatives because they were trying to revive the American isolationist tradition. But what you see in all of these different phases of Rothbard's life is a certain uh, consistency, and the consistency is he was always siding with whoever was opposed to the state's warfare apparatus, uh, whether it was isolationist conservatives or uh, the new left radicals or whatever, 
uh, and he was always interested in where the libertarian trends of the time were going. You know, who who out there was in opposition to the state, whether it was the Black Panthers in the 1960s or the militiamen in the early 1990s. So there's a certain consistency there with Rothbard, even if it seems a bit odd. You know, all of these different uh, alliances and associations he had throughout his life. And I want to focus on some of the more unique features of Rothbard compared to even many of the today's libertarians, because unlike a lot of libertarians who tend to be influenced by the conservatives, Rothbard believed that the American Revolution was a radical revolution rather than one of those so-called conservative anti-rebellions like Tom Woods argues. He also supported the French Revolution as one of the great movements in the fight for liberty, and he generally generally tended to have a more favorable view of violent revolution. He didn't necessarily think it was a practical or wise course, but he thought that the act of revolution by nature is moral since the state is by nature immoral. So any act of violence against the state or its agents was morally justifiable. That doesn't necessarily mean he supported all revolutionaries, far from it, but in one of the articles he wrote for the Libertarian Forum, which was a periodical he edited, he argued that revolution was in fact moral, and I think that was one of his greatest assets, which I don't think has been emphasized as often. Yeah, Rothbard wrote a really important essay back in the mid-1960s in precisely the journal that you're talking about. Uh, it's an essay called uh, Left and Right Prospects for Liberty, uh, where he talks about the legacy of the old order. He talks about how for thousands of years humanity lived under these tyrannical regimes where absolute poverty was the um, norm uh, and total exploitation by leaders and rulers was the norm. And he talks about how a series of revolutions that happened in the period between the 17th and 19th century um, undid all of that. You know, you had the Glorious Revolution in Britain, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, the revolutions of 1848. Um, and over time, that had the effect of ushering in modernity, ushering in industrial society, rising living standards, the idea of rights, the idea of uh, you know all of the ideas like right to a trial by jury, freedom from arbitrary arrest, separation of church and state, all of these different kinds of things that you see in modern societies came about during that time. Uh, so Rothbard was essentially on the radical left when it came to these kinds of ideas. Um, and he was a defender of revolutions. He was a defender of third world revolutions against Western imperialism. Uh, and he thought of the American Revolution as a radical kind of quasi-anarchistic revolution. Um, it, you're right when you say that uh, there are some modern American conservatives that try to claim that the American Revolution was somehow a conservative counter-revolution. Uh, I heard that claim to quite I don't day. agree uh, at all. I think it yeah, was a major either. radical movement. I think it was also a civil war. When I read this book by Holger Hook, he was a German historian in British history, and he argued that the revolution was far more violent than we recognize. And I think at one point he mentions that the American revolutionaries at, time, at times were using guerrilla warfare tactics that were called unfair back in the day. And when I read Rothbard's history, Conceived in Liberty, he was pointing this out that the American revolutionaries were using guerrilla tactics like shooting from behind and shooting behind trees. And I didn't really recognize this at first, but this doesn't strike me as a very conservative revolution at all. No, the idea that the American Revolution was a conservative revolution is something that was invented by later generations of, of American conservatives. Like Russell Kirk was a good example. Russell Kirk always took the line that... Um, 
the American Revolution was just a conservative revolution against the usurpations of the British monarchy. You know, it was about restoring tradition and things like that, which is ridiculous. I mean, if you uh, actually read the documents that the American Revolution was founded on, like the Declaration of Independence, now what you see is that it's uh, it's basically um, essentially plagiarism of John Locke, who was really the founder of modern classical liberalism, and it's also very similar to the documents that came out of the French Revolution, like the Declaration of the Natural Rights of Man. Um, and if you look at the provisions of the Constitution, uh, you see, well, what are the provisions? Well, they did away with the monarchy. They did away with the hereditary aristocracy. They did away with the established church. Uh, they um, said that every uh, state that was a constituent for the uh, republic had to have a republican form of government. Uh, you know, these are they, they did away with the titles of primogenitor. All of these things are you know, straight out of the Enlightenment, straight out of the uh, 18th century radical classical liberal philosophy. Um, you know, there's there's no way that this was a conservative counter-revolution. Uh, this was this this was radicalism for its time. Now, you know, from the point of view of hindsight, you know, looking uh, back 225 years or whatever it was, we can say, well, by the modern standards, it wasn't really that radical. You know, they still had slavery after the Revolution and, and all of those kinds of things. But the uh, American Revolution was a, a middle-class revolution. You had what was essentially the uh, what the Europeans would have thought of as a middle class, and that is the merchants, the bankers, the, uh, the, the non-titled landowners, that is, people who owned large amounts of land but did not have uh, aristocratic titles and all of that. Uh, that was really the basis of the American Revolution. So it was a kind of middle-class revolution against the traditional British elite uh, represented by the crown. And it was exactly the same kind of revolution that happened in uh, in France a few years later, although the, the, the French took it to, in more extreme directions. Uh, so the American Revolution was a very radical revolution, and it's also true that it was uh, a very innovative revolution in terms of things like guerrilla warfare tactics, which the... Uh, the American revolutionaries learned a lot of that from uh, the, the Native Americans, from their previous uh, skirmishes with them, and also from the um, from the uh, slave revolts. Uh, another thing that's often ignored is that there was a, a large population scattered throughout the Western Hemisphere of what they call Maroons. These were people that were mostly runaway slaves. Uh, many of them were black or, or uh, American Indians. But they actually uh, formed their own separatist communities in different places in the Western Hemisphere and actually engaged in guerrilla warfare as well. There was a, a female uh, leader of the Maroons. Her name was Nanny. They just called her Nanny that uh, actually developed guerrilla warfare tactics that are still studied in military academies today. Uh, and all of these kinds of things had their, uh, had an influence on the colonial revolutionaries in 1776 as well. So this is something else that's widely ignored. And since we're talking about the American Revolution, I've heard arguments that it was not technically a revolution, but a rather a secessionist effort, because technically the Americans didn't want to get rid of the British king, they simply wanted to separate. But at the same time, I think it was a revolution in terms of actually overthrowing governments, because a lot of internal governments and more were kind of overthrown, or at least replaced, or really changed up, especially with the whole loyalist population in there. And there was a lot of violence between the Patriots and the Loyalists. and Oh, yeah, there was a lot more uh, violence than what is often recognized. Uh, there were about 100,000 casualties in the American Revolution, uh, which is astounding when you consider there were only 3 million people living in the colonies at the time. 
and there were a lot of refugees as well. A lot of British loyalists became refugees that actually went to Canada uh, during yeah. that time. Or even back to Britain. Or back to Britain, yeah. And then there was the um, whole Sullivan campaign in 1779 where John Sullivan and George Washington basically went against the Six Nations for a whole extirpation campaign. Extirpation is basically like wipe them out. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of violence there. Um, well, the, when it came to the American um, uh, Indians, the Native Americans, you had a, Native Americans that were on both sides in the American Revolution. You had some that fought with the British and some that fought with the colonists. In fact, even some of the different tribes, some of the Native American nations were divided over that. The Iroquois, for example, um, had a, a policy where each individual village could decide which side they were going to fight with. So the uh, Iroquois villagers would, uh, some of them fought with the British, some of them fought with the Americans, depending on what was most advantageous to their situation or whom they thought was a greater threat, depending on the location and things like that. That's another interesting uh, bit of, uh, of the American Revolution that's not well known. Um, yeah, and, and, well, yeah, the idea that they wanted to, that this was not a revolution, I mean, they... We can the fact that they did away with the monarchy. Now there were some some revolutionaries like Hamilton that wanted to have a limited monarchy, um, but for the most part they did away with the monarchy. Uh, they they did away with the state church. In fact, that was something they were adamant about with separating church and state. Uh, if you uh, see the original Constitution, uh, not only in the Bill of Rights is there a provision for church-state separation, but it specifically says in the Constitution. There can be no religious test for public office. They were adamant about that. Um, the uh, uh, and then there also you see that there were no uh, they they rescinded the titles of primogenitor. There was there are no aristocratic titles allowed in the United States. So they they essentially wanted to expel the remnants of the British ruling class from the colonies. Uh, anything that represented royalty or the aristocracy or the Church of England, they essentially got rid of. Now again, these 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 people, uh, the American revolutionaries, were from the middle class, or what was to, what would have been by their standards the middle class. Uh, and they there were there were there was class conflict in the uh, colonies as well. For example, the uh, the Whiskey Rebellion, Shays Rebellion. Uh, one of the reasons why the Constitution was written and and they got rid of the Articles of Confederation was they thought the articles, some of the state governments were too friendly to the to the peasant, well, to the farmers and to the workers and all of that as well. So there was this kind of class conflict of the type that later developed in the 19th century between the uh, the rising industrial and merchant class on one hand and plantation owners and landowners and between the uh, the working class. Uh, but it was certainly a revolution on the sense, in the same sense that the French Revolution had been a revolution, where they did away with the old traditional European order. And brought something new. And I completely yes. agree. Of course... One of the main reasons they put out this American Revolution was a conservative revolution interpretation is, I think, to contrast to the French Revolution and to the Russian revolutions. And this came out largely during the Cold War, partly as a United States counter move against the evil Soviet Union. Well, some of it, I think, is ideological, and some of it is, is more of uh, simply trying to legitimize the state in the sense that... Um, if when you have a, a society, a nation that was founded in a revolution, then it's kind of hard to say that a revolution is illegitimate. Um, so you have to say, well, there's the right kind of revolution and there's the wrong kind. Um, and so it, it's helpful to uh, apologists for the establishment, for any kind of existing establishment, 
to say, well, yeah, you know, the, the society or the state or whatever that we represent may have been founded in revolution, but that was the, the right kind of revolution. That was a conservative revolution, whereas not one of these kinds of extremist, radical revolutions. Um, and during the, the Soviet period uh, in, in Russia, you had the same thing. I mean, you had the... Uh, um, the uh, elite, the Soviet elite, claiming to be the guardians of the revolution, against, and that dissidents were were counter uh, revolutionaries and reactionaries, and all of that kind of stuff as well. Uh, so there's always this situation where any existing state has to legitimize itself. And uh, during the uh, 1950s, when uh, the modern American conservative movement was starting to develop. Um, before that, conservative was considered to be something of a bad word in a lot of American political culture because it was associated with the traditional European order. Um, but when it started to be rehabilitated by guys like Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley and all of these people, um, that's one of the positions that they took. They said, well, the American Revolution, yeah, it was a revolution, but it was a conservative revolution, or it was a conservative counter-revolution against the the British monarchy that it exceeded, exceeded its bounds and tradition and all of these kinds of things. Uh, but I don't think that holds up under scrutiny at all. I think that you know the American Revolution was a radical revolution, uh, and these these other these later claims that it somehow wasn't are, are simply revisionist history. Uh, they're they're making claims that can't be based on historical facts. And since we're talking about the American Revolution, I want to talk about revolutions in general and how they relate to anarchism, because I see anarchism has a mixed feelings about revolution in general. There are anarchists who support violent revolution, and even in history, Lysander Spooner supported the John Brown's move. I think John Brown's a hero. But then there are anarchists who want a more nonviolent form like Leo Tolstoy. Well, yeah, there's always been an extreme dichotomy among anarchists on this, actually, because you have anarchists who are pacifists, who believe in only using pacifistic means of achieving goals. Tolstoy was an example. There are others that are influenced by Gandhi and thinkers like that, or Henry David Thoreau. Um, and then you have anarchists that believe in insurrection, who, who believe in violent revolution, even terrorism, as a means of achieving goals. Uh, in the late 19th and early 20th century, you had the propaganda by the deed idea, which they carried out dramatic assassinations and bombings and all of that, You know, a lot like the Islamists and groups like that today do. So that, that um, dichotomy has always been there. Uh, I suppose my take on it is somewhat similar to Kropotkin's. Kropotkin argued that revolutions tend to be inevitable in the sense that they do happen. I mean, as social upheaval takes place, which is going to happen, and uh, different groups move in and out of power, um, it's going. You know, there's going to be revolutions and there's going to be violence. That doesn't mean it's a great thing as an end unto itself, but it's just one of these uh, inevitable uh, facts of life in the sense that that's just part of how political change happens. Um, and if we look at history, we see that there's uh, certainly... Uh, uh, case to be made for that. We see, the, as we were talking about, the modern revolutions that really did do away with the old European order, uh, but did involve violence and political upheaval and things like that, the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Uh, and even in more recent times, we see that, you know, whether it was the anti-colonial revolutions in the, uh, de- in the developing world, or uh, even things like the civil rights movement, or, or things like that. And even in the 1960s, with a lot of the radicalism that was going on in the United States then, there, you know, there wasn't a violent revolution in the sense of overthrow of the government, but there was violence in the sense of riots and, and shootouts between the Black Panthers and federal agents and the cops and all of these kinds of things. 
So these kinds of things just do seem to be inevitable part of social struggle. It's not necessarily a thing anybody should think is wonderful. It's just it's one of those things that just tends to happen. My personal perspective on this is I'm generally more on the insurrectionist side of the anarchist spectrum. I don't necessarily mean we should go out right now and start a revolution. I don't think that's my argument, though I do think since revolution is inevitable, I think there is some case to be prepared for that and to do what whatever is necessary to be careful and to make the best of those situations. But my general perspective is I'm generally supportive of violent revolution against evil states and against the evils of things like slavery. I'm I'm a fan of people like John Brown, and I have a mixed feelings, somewhat admiration for the Black Panthers because I think in some ways they're more pro-gun rights than Ronald Reagan, for example. And of course, I'm generally favorable to the American and the French revolutions and even the English Civil War. Yeah, I would concur with all of that with the qualification that it's also true that revolutions also end up um, much of the time replacing a new kind of authoritarian or or, um, placing a new kind of authoritarian or tyrannical state in power. So that's something that needs to be uh, guarded against as well. Yes. Uh, Many of the historic revolutions, that's exactly what happened. So that's the other side of the question. Agreed. But then again, Rothbard once argued that most revolutionary governments, flawed as they were, were generally better off than whatever they replaced. Of course, Rothbard was not condoning the reign of terror or anything like that. But then again, he didn't view the French Revolution as necessarily worse off than, say, the old regime. Right. Um, Well, I think um, a better way of putting it is that, that revolutions tend to have the effect of setting in motion things that may be an improvement in the long run. Uh, a good example is France. Um, I mean, um, it's, it's probably good that the old traditional order was done away with, and the, that, that in turn set in motion the process that allowed for the modern French Republic to develop. Um, and the same thing is true with the United States. Uh, you know, we wouldn't necessarily want to still be a, an agricultural um, feudal monarchy. Um, most people, I think, in the United States would probably think that's a bad idea. Uh, and even in places like Russia and China, you know, as, as I, I would be far more critical of the revolutions that happened in those places. But um, it's also true, though, that that set in motion the development of industrial societies in those places and uh, and allowed those societies to join the modern world and become you know, de facto modern liberal nations or at least industrialized societies with uh, rising living standards and things like that. If anarchists are very mixed on the idea of gun control, I mean, if anarchists are mixed on the idea of revolution, how do they feel about guns in general? What do you think? Uh, well, obviously the libertarian-type anarchists, anarcho-capitalists, are very big on gun rights, uh, The and that's true of libertarians generally. When it comes to the leftist-type anarchists, um, generally speaking, I think most leftist-type anarchists are in favor of gun rights. I, I haven't seen... Um, a great deal of advocacy of gun laws among left anarchists. I, I have come across individuals with views like that, or maybe maybe uh, just as a matter of individual opinion, but uh, I don't generally see a lot of anarchists calling for um, strict gun control laws in the same way that progressive liberals do. It's certainly true that progressives tend to be really big on gun control, or, or left liberals, that's one of their... Uh, main ideas, one of their pet ideas, uh, but I don't see as uh, many anarchists 
calling for that. I think in part because they realize it's going to be used against them. I think a lot of anarchists understand that a state that comes after the guns is going to come after them eventually. Um, so they don't really want a state that's so powerful that will come after them. And especially um, the, since the state might go after minorities if they have all the guns. So that's also a consideration that I've looked into because yes. a lot of left pro-gun voices have argued from that perspective. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, the stricter the gun laws are, the more uh, minorities, uh, you know, black and Hispanic people are going to be arrested for gun laws. Uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be uh, your your middle-class gun owners who are dues-paying NRA members who, who get arrested for violating gun laws. It'll be the uh, uh, black and Hispanic people in the in the cities and things like that. So I think there are some leftists who are smart enough to understand that. I want to move on to one of the terms you created, which was totalitarian humanism, which you used to describe a lot of the political progressivism of today. Would you like to expand on what totalitarian humanism means and how it's yes, relevant today? Yes. Um, well, I've always been interested in criticizing the authoritarian left. Um, most anarchists are aware of the problem of the authoritarian right. Uh, most anarchists understand what's wrong with an absolute monarchy a military dictatorship, a fascist dictatorship, a hereditary aristocracy, a theocracy, national socialism or Nazism. Um, most anarchists understand what's wrong with right-wing authoritarianism. Some of them seem to me to miss, miss the boat a bit when it comes to left authoritarianism. Now, there are anarchists who are aware of the legacy of the uh, Russian Revolution and the Spanish Civil War, where you had a situation where the, the Marxist stabbed the anarchist in the back and, th and subverted the revolution and things like that. Uh, so there are anarchists of the left who are uh, very anti-Bolshevik in that sense. And of course you have anarcho-capitalists that are anti-communists, don't understand the problems with anarcho-communist, with, with, with communist state, not anarcho-communist, with co capital C, communist states. Um, at the same time, though, it's always seemed to me that while a lot of anarchists are aware of the problem with traditional communism, with the uh, you know, the Stalinist, Soviet, or Maoist type of communist uh, systems, they're a little bit weak on other kinds of leftist authoritarianism, and particularly that that's under the mask of progressivism, um, particularly modern progressivism. Uh, what I see uh, happening in the developed countries, in, in the Western countries, is the rise of what I call totalitarian humanism. And that's the, a more sophisticated term that I give to things like political correctness. There are a lot of these paleoconservative people refer to political correctness as cultural Marxism. I think that's a bit of a misnomer because Marxism is an economic doctrine. It's all about class determinism and economic determinism. And once you move away from an emphasis on economics, you don't really have Marxism anymore. Um, but cultural, uh, what, what is commonly called cultural Marxism is the idea of where the, the focus of a leftist authoritarian movement is not economics but cultural uh, questions. Um, but I, what I see going on with uh, political correctness or totalitarian humanism or, or whatever you want to call it is the rise of a kind of authoritarianism that is ostensibly rooted in progressive ideas, uh, as was Marxism. Marxism was rooted in the idea of an egalitarian society without social classes and eventually without the, even the state. But uh, every Marxist regime in practice uh, 
every country that experienced a Marxist revolution ended up creating a, a de facto military dictatorship under a one-party state with concentration camps and, and things like that. Uh, so that's not something we want to emulate, obviously. Um, and, uh, again, a lot of anarchists are aware of that problem, but I don't think they are nearly as uh, critical as they should be of Western, the Western model of leftist authoritarianism. They may, they may understand what's wrong with the Eastern model of leftist authoritarianism, but the Western model, I didn't think they are quite as aware of. Um, but when we see all of the things that are going on today, uh, when we see that the zeal that uh, some people on the far left have for persecuting people that they think are insufficiently progressive, or when we see uh, forms of authoritarianism where we see the the, uh, the left wanting to use the state to uh, regulate society in the name of uh, enforcing progressive ideals, or shutting down points of view or censoring points of view that they find insufficiently progressive. All of that is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about totalitarian humanism. Um, now, totalitarian humanism can come in different forms. You have a, a you know a more mainstream form uh, that's more uh, under the ma- under the mask of uh, mainstream liberalism or centrism. And then you can have a more fanatical form that you find on the far left with these Antifa groups and things like that as well. But all of those kinds of ideas are about this uh, perspective that uh, points of view that are insufficiently progressive simply should never be heard or should never be allowed to exist. Um, And I'm not talking about just white supremacists and neo-Nazis and groups like that. But Uh, even libertarians... Yeah, yeah, they have the same attitude towards libertarians, towards traditional conservatives, towards mainstream Republicans. Uh, for example, you see uh, the uh, uh, some of these Antifa-type groups and other similar groups uh, staging riots against uh, speakers like Ben Shapiro, whom I don't like and don't don't agree with on very many. Things. I don't like him very well either, to be honest with you. I think he's a neoconservative apologist for the state of Israel, and he hated Ron Paul, and I hold that against him. Yeah, so he, I mean, he's not someone that I'm a fan of or would ordinarily want to go to bat for, but when you see uh, people rioting against uh, a speech by just a mainstream uh, neoconish Republican like Ben Shapiro or opposing libertarians or, or even rival leftists, you know, more and more now I'm starting to see um, this kind of thing happening on the left where you have uh, you know, university professors who are on the left but are insufficiently left or disagree with the left on this or that thing. Uh, you see these kinds of conflicts going on. Um, within the left anarchist movement, this is particularly bad. Um, the, anar- the left anarchists will hold these periodic events, these anarchist book fairs and, and gatherings for anarchists. And I, it's been a good number of years since I went to any of these things, but from what I'm told, they frequently degenerate into fistfights between rival groups of anarchists because uh, one group will show up with a book table and display books that have ideas in them that another group doesn't like, so there's a fight over this or something like this. Um, uh, that's what I mean when I'm talking about totalitarian humanism. Uh, you know, the, or, or there's, and then there's the idea that the bar is always being raised, like what was acceptably uh, progressive yesterday is not acceptably progressive today. Uh, so even if you had your gender pronouns right yesterday, you're still getting it wrong today. Um, and it's, and there's, it's always retroactive, you know, and there's never any any pardons given either. Um, it's almost like a whole ideological corset, so to speak. Right, right. It's, um, well, it's the same kind of thing that you see in totalitarian 
states, actual totalitarian states. Um, you know, the kind of stuff that was lampooned by George Orwell when he talked about how um, you know, history would always be written, be rewritten according to the party line of the moment and things like that. And that's exactly how these groups work. Um, you know, the sum total of all of these different kinds of things, I think, would make for a very uh, awful uh, social system. Uh, one thing that they want to, to do is um, when it comes to what they call rape culture, they have this idea, well, because in the past there, there's been uh, situations where, say, rape victims were not taken seriously and things like that, they essentially, uh, in many instances, want to do away with due process. Well, you know, if somebody accuses someone of rape, well, by definition, that person making the opposition, uh, making the accusation, ought to be believed. Uh, so it's a total inversion of the idea of innocent until proven guilty. Okay. Um, one thing that I've also found in a lot of leftist subcultures is that a lot of them are prone to making all sorts of exaggerated and extravagant claims about uh, sexual assaults taking place. It's very similar to the uh, false memory syndrome that happened some years ago. Some years ago, there was this uh, trend where people were supposedly remembering having been sexually abused as a child, you know, even if it really never happened, but they supposedly had these repressed memories and, and all of these kinds of Based things. Based on and a I, potential distortion of Sigmund Freud? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's a... Uh, yeah, it's really just an, an, an effort to introduce all kinds of psychobabble, you know, as a, as a matter of uh, social policy in many instances. But you have people that take this very seriously. Um, so the, the issue, though, with totalitarian humanism is the idea that, you know, it's, it's not only the whole psychology of this, that, you know, this kind of totalitarian psychology, but the idea that this kind of stuff is increasingly finding its way into the state and into other institutions. Um, where, uh, for example, you have the state trying to regulate every aspect of life uh, in the name of enforcing progressive values. Um, again, you know, even a more mainstream, liberal-oriented uh, version of this would be uh, the obsession with child abuse that we see in some circles. Uh, yeah, especially I've seen a lot in the conspiracy theory circles that the elites are abusing children, they have this Pizzagate everything, which, don't don't get me wrong, I think a lot of elites have abused children and abused youngsters, which we've come to discover increasingly more and more. Kevin Spacey, and there is also this man named Larry Nassar who really abused a lot of people. This is not just some, like, in, indiscretion. This was, like, real abuse. Well, I, that, all, all of that is true in the sense that, yeah, on one hand, there are people that really are engaged in abuse, and then there are strange and outlandish conspiracy theories about pedophile rings and that kind of stuff. But I wasn't so much talking about that as much as I was talking about things like parents getting charged with child abuse because they let the kid go play in a park or something like that, or or play outside unsupervised, or, or things of that nature. Or you have kids getting kicked out of school for, for bringing cough drops to school because uh, uh, cough drops are a drug. Um, or, um, you know, I had, a, I had a friend of mine that her son was in the fourth grade, and he got kicked out of school for the rest of the year for having a plastic water pistol, a toy. Um, and there, there are tons of things like this. I mean, where there are many, many examples I could cite uh, from all kinds of areas of life um, where you have the state and the institutions generally trying to regulate 
uh, society and the lives of individuals in the name of uh, ostensibly enforcing either progressive values like you know equality and non-discrimination and things like that, or or uh, or health or safety or in the environment or whatever. And one of the groups of people who have effectively called this out in some way or another are the sex worker communities for a good reason, because they're often the ones who are targeted in this totalitarian humanist wave. And I want to just move on to something a leftist said. Every cynical, destructive thing the American right wing does is now characterized as retaliation for the left, criticized bigoted policies or behavior, and the punishment is even more of the same, more of the radicalization, racist shitposting, and more. Domestic violence survivors are familiar with this tactic. The only response that the American right will accept from the left is silence and obedience. And this is from a critic who's writing on film and TV I generally respect a lot. And I do agree insofar that there are people on the right wing who do in fact want to suppress the left and who have stated as much. Well, that's true. Um, you, the, the authoritarian right, you know, as I said earlier, is a very lengthy tradition. Uh, and... Um, you know, what passes for the right in mainstream American society today is really the neocons, uh, you know, the, the leadership of the Republican Party and mainstream conservatism and all of that is, is neoconservatism, which has its roots in the left, which has its roots in liberalism and the left. Uh, I'd actually argue that the far right actually has very little influence in mainstream American society. Um, and when, I mean, when it comes to neo-fascists and neo-Nazis and groups like that, that kind of stuff is very much on the peripheral um, element of American political culture, as is Marxism and, and, and genuine communists and all of that from the other end. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, in the United States, we have two parties, a liberal party and a conservative party, and then we have the, uh, you know, fringes of, of other things as well. Um, but I, I think in many ways, though, the, the left and the right are mirror each other in many of these kinds of uh, culture wars and back-and-forth tribal warfare between these different factions. I do tend to agree that they often are mirror images of each other. I think the general offense and the outraged culture exists on both sides of the question. I'm not saying outrage is legitimate. I think it is a legitimate feeling to being offended. Sometimes when you feel that a certain group or that you yourself are insulted or marginalized, I can understand if you feel offended at like a portrait of a black guy in blackface, uh, that's fine. I mean, it's understandable if you're offended by something like Gone with the Wind or Birth of a Nation, both films which have depicted racism and white supremacy in good contexts. But at the same time, when I mean outrage, I mean like outraged at every little thing, or to put it more in a nuanced way, outrage to the point that you demand suppression. And this is where it gets yeah. problem. problematic. Yeah, and, and I think that the, the real issue is the way that the these kinds of concepts of what is offensive and what is not keep getting redefined in ever more extravagant ways. I mean, you know, bur- burning a cross in public, yeah, that's we understand why that's offensive. Um, uh, you know, a lot of, as you mentioned, a lot of literature and entertainment from the past really was racist in terms of its um, depictions of, of black people and things like that. But I do think there's a, and a good example is cultural appropriation, you know, where if you have a, a white people with uh, dreadlocks in their hair or something like that, that's considered cultural appropriation. Or if you're eating Chinese food but you're not Chinese, that's cultural appropriation. Or uh, I think all of that kind of stuff is more problematic.
Yeah, and one argument I've heard about the cultural appropriation thing was that if a white guy writes about Muslim suffering, he might, if he succeeds enough, prevent another Muslim author from being able to write something about the Muslim experience because white guys apparently have the most power, cultural and social power in society, and there is an element of white supremacy in that. That's the argument. And so I think cultural appropriation argues from that perspective, which I do not agree with, but that's an argument I've heard because I've been following this and how the literary circles have dealt with this issue because I'm a literary person myself. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't even heard that one before. Um, yeah, but I, I have heard that um, even when, uh, say you have somebody that's considered uh, from a, a privileged population group, you know, like somebody who's white or straight or male or Christian, uh, it's it's often been said that, well, they can't even be an advocate for people who are oppressed because they are um, they don't really understand the experience of having been oppressed, of their keeping the oppressed from advocating from themselves, or they're keeping somebody who's actually from an oppressed community from being the leader or something like that. Never mind yeah. that black Americans and even a lot of black people have praised a white Christian heterosexual man named John Brown who represented them and who put his own life on the line for them and made friends with black people in a day that most white people wouldn't even consider that. Yeah, yeah, that is interesting to consider. Um, and I, we, I think also from the other end of the spectrum, we, we see a backlash against this, and uh, or it, it's not so much a backlash, it's just an, an inflammation of things that already existed, I think where the more you see uh, people on the left end pushing some of this kind of uh, you know, political correct extremism or whatever, we, uh, we see people on the right turning up the volume as well. Um, and that's what we've seen with a lot of these alt-right people and uh, other things like that as well. So I don't, I don't really think there's anything good about any of that. Neither do I in the end. I was flirting with the alt-right myself. I sometimes used vocabulary like cuckold, cuckoldry, and everything. But then ever since the whole Charlottesville thing and then later on, I began to move away from that. And to be honest, I was following some of the left-wing voices, not necessarily the mainstream left voices, though those were included, but even some of the more radical left and on the sex worker community and similar, and I've sometimes sympathized in my cultural views with the perspectives that they have offered, especially on things like the sexual revolution and things like that. So I'm more of the individualist side of the left. I'm not a leftist, but if I were going to sympathize with parts of the left movement, I would definitely sympathize with the more individualist, freedomist strains of leftism. Well, since you're, you're mentioning the sex worker rights movement, I, I think that fits in with my actual critique of totalitarian humanism, because sex workers are a group that never really made it under the umbrella of the oppressed. Like, you have the, the left's you know, progressive stacking of who they consider to be oppressed and who's not oppressed, but then you have a lot of groups that really are uh, persistently attacked by the state and by other institutions, that aren't really recognized, or at least not widely recognized. Uh, sex workers are one of that one of the categories of that type, uh, and you also have plenty of people that are on the progressive end of the spectrum who are very opposed to sex worker rights. Um, oh yes, uh, and there's also these celebrity PSAs, and and there are a lot of people who have argued against legalizing prostitution because that will legalize male sexual objectification and the exploitation of women at the hands of those dirty heterosexual males. 
Right, yeah. Uh, well, I consider all of that stuff to be the new social conservatism. I mean, uh, you know, what I Agreed. call totalitarian humanism is in many ways the new social conservatism. It's, you know, instead of having all of these pieties that are built up around the you know, veneration of the flag and blasphemy laws and family values and all of these kinds of things, uh, it, you have the same kind of way of thinking, but it's built up around, uh, you know, uh, supposed supposed racial liberation or, or, or gender equality or things like that, but it's really just a new kind of uh, conservatism that's always about suppressing uh, people in groups you don't like. And I wonder if this was partly happening during the 19th and 20th centuries, and I think especially in the 20th century there was a lot of backlash against the people who didn't want to join World War II, and films like Casablanca were made to depict that isolationism as sort of bad and... Rick, the so-called isolationist in Casablanca who would never stick out his neck for anybody, is really just a patriot at heart who's just upset because his girlfriend left him. Well, it's certainly true that non-interventionism in foreign policy is, is still vilified in that way. Uh, you know, there's the idea of being an isolationist is somehow bad. Um, in fact, even a lot of uh, people on the left who, who, are, who are, tend to be anti-interventionist on foreign policy will shy away from this term, uh, isolationist, because it, it somehow contotes, um, you know, being a, a reactionary or xenophobic or, you know, pro-Nazi or something like that. Or Southern. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, but um, the, the, you know, the legacy of World War II really is uh, something that uh, has, a, has a terrible legacy. I mean, not only was it a terrible war, uh, but... Um, it, it tended to have the effect of of legitimizing or even deifying war. I think in many ways, in the sense it's like the good war, so called. At least if you talk about World War One, people would at least agree that that was a terrible war on all sides. Or even the Civil War, you might have some acknowledgement that even if the Union was a good army who was fighting to abolish slavery, at least you could acknowledge that the Civil War was bad on both sides to some extent. Whereas in World War Two, it's kind of like the good Americans, the good British are fighting against evil Nazis and they're punching Nazis and that's supposed to be replicated in today's environment. Yeah, well, I think that's interesting as well because the whole legacy of, of World War II has, um, you know, not only is it de- legit, not only did it legitimize war, you know, as the good war, uh, and, and it gave the state the means of comparing every foreign head of state that they'd want to get rid of uh, to Hitler, um, but it's also created this kind of cultural um, atmosphere where uh, you have the official bad people. You know, anybody that uh, seems like they might kind of sort of resemble uh, Nazis or something like that is considered to be uh, some grave threat to civilization. And can uh, be legitimately punched or at least severely ostracized, depending on which leftist you talk to. Right, right. I mean, uh, you know, in, in modern Western democratic societies the 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 genuine far right like neo nazis and groups like that have very 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 marginal influence i mean i really they have no influence they're more just like a collection of cult cultic uh, you know, freak show type of groups uh yeah. you know, they're no different than some of the ufo cults and 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 strange groups like that um but because they are, you know, there's this cultural atmosphere that considers that perspective to be the ultimate in evil. They're the, they're the official bad people. 
So people with ideas like that end up getting a whole lot more publicity than they really deserve or should get, uh, given their size and influence. Um, and they're held up as being these grave threats to society. Um, it, it's uh, it's interesting to see how that works. Um, in, in, in reality, there's nowhere in the Western world where an actual fascist party has any real influence. The 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 uh, the one exception would be Greece, uh, where they have the Golden Dawn, which is a, a neo-Nazi party that has some level of influence, uh, somewhat. I mean, their their leaders have also been arrested by the Greek state, so I'm, you have to wonder how, how much influence they really have. Uh, but other than that, I mean, there's no real uh, example of you know a fascist, a neo-Nazi, or or even really a far-right party having any uh, influence in modern societies. I mean, so the so-called anti-immigration parties in in Europe, like the Front National and the and groups like that in in, in France, um, I mean, all they all they really want to do is turn the clock back to say the the pre-neoliberal era, like the the 1980s or something like that, when uh, you know before the large waves of um, immigration and, and refugees and, and all of the other things that are that are intertwined with the, the global economy and, and the American foreign policy and all of that began to take root. Uh, you know, so you know, many of those groups, by the standards of a few decades ago, would be considered liberals or moderates. Um, so there's really, you know, group, groups that are actually advocating genocide, slavery, things like that are actually very, very rare and very, very marginal. And it's, uh, I, I think it's regrettable that the political left and even much of the political establishment takes this kind of thing and, and blows it out of proportion. So before we close the episode, do you think pan-anarchism, pan-secessionism, do you think that's ever possible in America or even in the world, even today? Well, I, I think that it, it requires a type of um, psychic sea change in the sense that um, it requires a change in terms of awareness and perception. Um, a, a good examples I like to use or analogies I like to use would be to some of the changes that have actually happened uh, in a relatively short period of time. Um, if we could go back to the 1950s or early 1960s and ask people just off the street in the United States, uh, what do you think of the idea of having a black president? Or what do you think of the idea of having a woman president? Or what do you think of the idea that gay people should be able to get married? Or what do you think of the idea of legalizing marijuana? Or you know, all of these things that have happened in you know, recent times in the United States that uh, a few decades ago, maybe half a century ago, would have been considered either insane or crazy or ridiculous or repulsive or, or whatever. Um, so what that shows is how rapidly social norms and mores can change. Um, I think that the main task of anarchists of any kind is to delegitimize the state, is to uh, advance the point of view that says that, hey, the state is simply the mafia writ large. That's what the state does. Uh, and then the rest of it just comes down to this question of how we're going to abolish the state and what comes next and what your preferred model of anarchy actually is. Okay, I just want to thank you so much for joining this show. Your comments have been really insightful, and you really know a lot about your subject matter. I want to thank you for talking with me. It's been one of the greatest episodes, I think, that I've ever recorded. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Okay. Until next time, you have been listening to the Letter of Liberty podcast, where we welcome guests to discuss literature, liberty, politics, news, and potentially all that is under the sun.
Like what you hear? Here's how you can let us know. Give us a call at 516-299-2626 or email us at info at wcwp.org. Like us at facebook.com slash mywcwp and leave a comment or tweet us at mywcwp. We welcome all kinds of feedback. To directly support the podcast you just enjoyed, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to give back, visit wcwp.org and click the support tab. Thanks for listening from your friends at WCWP.